Can you be confident of your salvation? Is it possible for you to know with any sort of confidence what God will say of you on the judgment day? That day when all of our thoughts and all of our deeds and all of our words and all the things that we didn't do are put on display before everybody, can you know with confidence now what God will say of you then? There's all sorts of people in the world who say that, no, you can't. There's even a tradition within Christianity that says that if you say you have confidence of going to heaven, in fact, you're going to hell. Within Islam, there is no such thing as certainty. Maybe Allah will be kind. Maybe Allah won't. Maybe I've done enough. Maybe I haven't. Muhammad himself is, is quoted in one of the hadiths as having said, as for me, I don't know what will happen. Buddhism is all about the great uncertainties. The atheist says, well, there's nothing to be certain of. And the agnostic says there's no possible way that we could know. Can you be confident of your salvation? What would you need to know in order to be confident? Now, tonight's passage is all about one man. Now, we're going to come back to that question, but tonight's passage is all about one man. He's a man who, who will have perhaps the greatest influence out of any upon the 21st century, even though he's been dead for a very long time, and as far as I'm aware, he didn't write anything, he didn't begin any great movements. As of a few years ago, the last figures I could find, there were 2.2 billion Christians in the world, 1.6 billion Muslims, and 14 million Jews, all of them claiming to be the true descendants of Abraham. And it kind of really matters who the true descendants of Abraham really are. God spoke to him and about him the sentence that you could say is the topic sentence of the whole Bible. Flick back to Genesis 12. Keep your finger in Romans 4 if you've still got it open. And turn back to Genesis 12, the first Bible reading, page 11. And listen to this promise that God made to Abram that would then flow on to his descendants. Genesis 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What an astonishing promise. Three parts it had. I'm going to give you a land. They're still fighting over it today. I mean, that's why it's called the promised land was because God promised it. I'm going to make you into a great and mighty nation. And through you, Abraham, blessing is going to come to the entire world. As it said in Romans 4, the promise to Abraham was that he and his descendants would inherit the world. 
So it kind of matters who are the descendants of Abraham. Now, of course, God's got a sense of humour. I don't know if you've come across God's sense of humour yet. It's a bit dry. You'll know it when you come across it. Basically, never say never to God because you know what's about to happen next, right? We've done it a few times. I'll tell you, don't do it. And God went and picked a man called Abram, which is a little bit of a joke to start with. Abram means father. So God went and picked a man named Father and promised him, I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you descendants like the stars in the heavens, he promised him. But Father, the man Father, had no children. This is God's idea of a joke, right? And then a couple of chapters later, verses 15 and 17, God says, oh, you know what, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to rub it in a little bit more. You're not going to be called Abram anymore. You're going to be called Abraham. And do you know what Abraham means? Even worse, father of many. And he still had no children. Oh, and by the way, he was 99 by this stage. And his wife was 90. And yet God promised him, your descendants will inherit the world. And through you, I will bring blessing to all. And do you know what Abraham did? He believed God. He trusted him. He trusted his promise. Now that's the background you've got to have in mind as we come to Romans chapter 4. So flick back to Romans 4. Page 1093. And look, tonight's not going to be an easy one, right? So if you're a note taker, make sure you go for it. It's going to take some thinking. It's going to take some hard work. And before we come to the, to the heart of Romans 4, I want a really quick recap of the last three chapters for you. I'm not big on recaps, but I thought this one was worth doing. Now, I've got eight points. Uh, I'm going to go fairly quickly through them. So, uh, in fact, it's going to be easier if I get the other thing. Okay, here we go. Eight points that are going to recap the last three chapters for you. Number one, God is angry with sin. Number two, his anger is partial now. He hands us over to our sin, but it will be final. A day will come when all sin is called to account for. Number three, all who sin will be punished. Number four, all are under sin. So you know what comes next. Number five, all will be punished. Number six, the law which was given to us doesn't help. All it does is condemn. It just shows us where we stuff up. It can't help us become righteous. Number seven, and this is where we hit last week, we hit that big, that enormous but. But God is rich in mercy. And so he's holding back that final judgment so that people can repent. And not only that, but he has given his own son to die in the place of those who deserve it. An atoning sacrifice. His blood instead of ours. And so, eight, God's mercy is to be responded to with faith. Okay, if you didn't get all of those down, it's all right. You can grab them off me later. Uh, that's just a very quick recap. And so we come to Romans chapter 4. And look, look with me at verses 16 and 17. They're really the heart of this chapter. The whole chapter is just in here, in these two verses. Therefore, Paul says, the promise, remember that promise to Abraham, comes by faith. 
so that it might be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. I know it's dense. I know it's packed in. It's okay. We're going to walk through it, work through it. The rest of the chapter is going to tease it out for us. But notice we're talking about the same promise still. If you look back up to verse 13, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Still the same promise we're talking about that God made to Abraham and it's a promise that comes not by law but through faith that it might be by grace. There's my first point. The promise is given by grace. God's grace, that is, not someone called grace, not the thing you say before meals. God's grace, God's generosity, God's gift, God's present, God's undeserved favour towards us. And in this passage, grace is contrasted, it's compared to wages. Look at verse 3. The promise is given by grace. What does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. To the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Abraham was righteous. Not in himself. It's not that Abraham was the first guy to be perfect or that he somehow managed to earn his way to just get over the bar and be righteous enough and God owed him for that. Rather, he was righteous because God gifted it to him. It was a present, not wages that were owed. We know how wages work, right? Who has at some point in their life worked for money? Okay, right? There's most of us. We understand the concept, right? You, you, you have a deal with your boss. You work for a certain amount of hours, you do a certain kind of work, and at the end of it, he will pay you a certain amount, or he or she will pay you a certain amount of money, right? That's, that's how it works. You, you don't get to the end, you do your 40 hours or 50 or 60, whatever it is, ridiculous hours that you work, and you get to the end of the week and your boss gives you your pay. You don't say, thank you, you're so kind. You're so... You don't call your boss generous for that. He owes you that money. If he doesn't pay it to you, you'll sue him to get it from him, right? That's... That's a wage. You work for it, they owe it to you. It's earned. It's deserved. But what's a gift like? You can't rock up to somebody and say, you owe me a present. Except that we kind of do, don't we? We kind of don't get presents. We only really give them when it's birthdays and Christmases or when you're trying to impress someone, hey, hey, boys, flowers, you know what I'm saying, right? That's Someone got married, they had a baby. 
that's not real present giving. I mean, let's be honest. That's, that's just a transaction. I know I'm going to get something back. And if I give you something good enough, I'm getting something good back in return. Right? That's kind of how... I'm talking about a real present here. The sort of present where you just think to yourself, you know what, I reckon so-and-so would just love this. I want to give it to them. I want them to it'll make them happy. I hope you had some examples at least of giving presents that weren't tied to an event, to, to some sort of something that you owed people. I, I must admit, I kind of struggled to come up with them. We aren't generous in that way. But Abraham's righteousness was a true gift. It was not a wage because it came by faith, not by works. He did not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. He was like you and me, evil, wicked, sinful. And yet God chose, because he is kind, to gift righteousness to Abraham, to make a promise to him that was astonishing. All Abraham had to do was trust, was accept, was rely upon God. Now, don't get confused. Don't think that the faith that Abraham had was the work, that you somehow have to do the work of faith, and if you do the work of faith, well, then God owes me. He's got to pay for me, right? It's, 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 a, very, it's a difficult to explain relationship. You, you just trust God. It's a passive thing. It's not a work that I'm doing. Let me illustrate it for you. Uh, you, you are all right now displaying a, an astonishing amount of faith. You've been doing it all evening, in fact. From the moment that you sat down on that pew, you have placed your faith in that pew. That is going to hold you up. It's not going to be very comfortable. You're not trusting that. That's okay, except for the people who got cushions. Well done, you got here early. Right, but, but that is going to hold you up. It's not your faith that is holding you up. It's the pew. I can demonstrate that if you want. Who would like to come out the front and sit on their faith? It's not the faith that's holding you, it's the pew that's... And and yet you you, you entrust yourself into it to hold you. Abraham's faith wasn't his work that he did. He just trusted God, that God could do what he said he could, that it was given to him. Paul uses David as another example in verse 6. See, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they, he said, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. See, there's blessing in being found righteous apart from works. He doesn't say, blessed is the one who is perfect. Blessed is the one who always keeps the law and so is righteous in themselves. No, blessed is the one whose sin is covered, is forgiven, is forgotten is dealt with by God. The promise was given by grace, undeserved, not as a wage, but as a gift. So I come back to verse 16. See, the promise comes by faith, that it might be by grace. See, it comes to those who trust God, not to those who work to get themselves in, that it might be a present, not a wage, and so may be guaranteed to all. That's my second point. The promise is guaranteed to all, verses 9 to 15. If righteousness 
depends on law-keeping than it depends on performance. If righteousness depends upon law-keeping, it depends on my performance. Have I done enough today? Will I do enough tomorrow? Will I do enough the next day and the next? Will I do enough next week and next year? Will I still be doing enough when life gets hard? When I'm wronged? I can never be certain. But if righteousness comes by grace, comes as a gift, comes as a promise, then do you know what it depends on? It depends on God keeping his word. And he does. And so you can be certain. It is in fact a guarantee. We know about guarantees, right? Usually, guarantees aren't worth the paper they're written on. You know what it's like. This product will not fail within 12 months. And the day after that guarantee ends, it breaks, right? You know, you know how it works. And in fact, even then, if it breaks beforehand and you send it back, they find some lame excuse to not fix it. Oh, no, you opened this product yourself. That was unauthorized. Your guarantee has been... I mean, our guarantees aren't worth very much. But God's guarantee, God's word, God's promise... Whew, the word that created from nothing, that is the word that backs this promise. It truly is a guarantee to all. And notice that it's a guarantee to all of Abraham's offspring. And all of a sudden, that question becomes so important. Who are Abraham's descendants? Because the promise is guaranteed to them by God's own word. Could it be the descendants of Ishmael, who was the first son that Abraham had with a servant woman? Is it the descendants of Isaac, the son that God had promised him that he did have with Sarah? Was it the descendants of Jacob or Esau, the children that Isaac had? Was it the descendants of one of the twelve tribes? Was it, is it the people who are circumcised or the people who are uncircumcised? Is it the people who keep the law? Who are the descendants of Abraham? Well, let's see verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? There's the question. Who is it for? Now, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. When Abraham trusted God, that was when he was credited, gifted righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Well, it wasn't after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision, which was a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You can't say, I'm Jewish, therefore I am a descendant of Abraham, when Abraham himself was gifted the righteousness of God before he was Jewish, so to speak, before he had the circumcision. And so then, Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but also walk in the faith of Abraham. So it's not circumcision that determines whether you are a descendant of Abraham. You'll be glad to know. 
It wasn't the law-keeping either. All of these things that, that the Jewish people in the Old Testament held on to as the signs that they were the people of God. It's not that either, verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that they would be heir, he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value. The promise is worthless. That is, if you can earn it yourself, why do you need someone to promise it to you? I don't need you to promise me dinner tonight. I can buy it for myself. I don't need you to promise me that a car. I, I, I could work and earn money and get it for myself. If by the law I can achieve righteousness, we don't need God to promise it to us. We can get there ourselves. In fact, the law, all it does is bring wrath. All the law does is show you where you've gone wrong. It draws a line in the sand and then you cross it. That's it. That's all the law does. The law has no power to stop you. It has no power to compel you to do good. All it does is show you where you do wrong. So it's not circumcision. It's not the law. Who then are the children of Abraham? Well, the children are those who have the faith of Abraham. See, verse 13, it was not through law that he received the promise, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, that it might be by grace and might be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you truly are descended of Ishmael or Isaac or Jacob or Esau or any of those guys. Your bloodline doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. Doesn't matter if you're a keeper of the law or not. What matters is this do you have the faith of Abraham? For if you do, you are his true descendant, and therefore the promise is guaranteed to you too. Which, of course, leaves us with the final question well, what is the faith of Abraham? What is it? If you tell me that's what I've got to have in order to be promised to be an heir of the world, how do I get that? Well, the faith of Abraham is illustrated for us in verses 18 to 25. I'll tell you three things about this faith. Firstly, Abraham's faith had an object. It was placed in someone. See, it makes no sense to simply say, I trust. I, I, I trust what? I depend. D- depend in who? I rely. On what? I faith. I mean, we, we get that it's wrong, and so we have to stick that little word have in there. I have faith. But that still doesn't make sense either. Have faith in what? In who? Abraham's faith had an object. Notice it. Is back up in verse 17. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. Abraham is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. That's the same word, the believe, faith, trust. It's that, it's that same word right there. God was the object of Abraham's faith. And not just any God, but the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. 
Abraham's faith is specifically faith in the God who gives life to the dead and brings things into existence that didn't used to exist. Secondly, Abraham's faith is a persuaded faith. Look down at verse 20. Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. For for many, faith is the opposite of reason. That is, if you have facts, if you have sure knowledge, if you have just these things that you don't have to uh, imagine, right? they're real and they're sure and they're concrete, then you don't need faith. You only need faith when there's things that you don't know. It, it, it's the leap in the dark is what we say, right? It's when it's unreasonable, when, there's, when there's, it's superstitious and, and, and really quite silly to believe. That's what faith is. But that's not what the Bible says faith is. Faith just means trusting. You can trust in something that is very trustworthy. You can use your reason and your intelligence and and discover facts to know that something or someone is trustworthy. You can use your reason and discover facts to know that someone is untrustworthy. It was a rational faith that led Abraham to believe God. And why wouldn't you? Abraham knew God. He knew the God who created everything out of nothing. How hard can it be for God to make one baby? Even out of bodies that were basically dead. Easy as. Abraham's faith was a persuaded, convinced, rational faith. And so thirdly, Abraham's faith is our faith. Verse 23. See, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, the Old Testament is a Christian book. It's not, it's not a Jewish book, because they, they call it the Torah and they say it's theirs, but it's a Christian book. It was written for us, that we might learn, that we might know See, the same faith that Abraham had, the faith of the people in the Old Testament, is the same faith as the people in the New. God made promises to them and they were called on to trust God. The one who raises the dead to life, the one who creates from nothing, the one who makes promises. You and I are called to the same faith, to trust God who makes promises. What promise? I mean, do do you and I therefore get the promise that says that when we're 100, we're going to have a kid? I hope not. We've uh, we've had all of that. He's 10 weeks old today now, and, uh, you know, I'm 30. And just the thought of having another kid when you're 100, I mean, holy moly, can you imagine being 100 and chasing after an 18-month-old or something, you know? That's not the promise to us. Remember the God that we're talking of, the God who brings life from the dead, the God who raised Jesus, the God who promises us the same righteousness, credited, gifted 
given free of any sort of work to those who trust in the death of Jesus. The one who died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. If Jesus was still dead, he'd still be paying for sin. But he was raised to life. Sin is paid. It's done. It's dealt with. We can be righteous. And you know what? The promise, that same promise, comes by grace. It is freely offered to you and to me. It's held out to us that we too might find righteousness. Someone said to me last night, we're doing Christianity Explored at the moment, and someone said to me, well, David, that's not fair. This is not fair. Are you telling me that someone can go their whole life being evil and then be forgiven? They, they can just, not just like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of okay, but I'm dodging my tax, but like seriously evil, wicked, right? Just filling their life with bad things from end to end and then at the end just being forgiven. That's not fair. And you know what? It's not fair. Fair would be that you and I on the last day, do you know what we get? Exactly what we deserve. Fair would be that the full anger, the full wrath of the God who hates sin would fall upon us. That is fair. And I, for one, I really don't want it. This isn't fair. This is grace. This is a gift. This is a present that we do not deserve and have no way of earning given to us. And you know what? Because it comes by grace, it is guaranteed. Because it doesn't depend upon me. It depends upon God keeping his word. And he does. He does keep his word. Can you be confident of your salvation? What would you need to know in order to have confidence of what's going to happen on the last day, I'll tell you. You know what you need to know? You need to know now what God will say then. And he's offering to you the promise of saying, you are righteous. Your sin is paid for in full by my son. If that doesn't give you confidence, I don't know what would. The promise is given to us by grace that it may be guaranteed to all who have the faith of Abraham. Abraham trusted God. And I'll tell you what, it must have been hard. Abraham was 75 years old when God first came to him and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Sarah was 65. It's kind of pushing it to have a kid. In fact, Abraham was kind of like, oh, I don't know, can, can you? How about I go and have a kid with this other woman instead? Is that okay? No, I'm going to give you a son through your wife, Sarah. Fourteen years later, still hadn't had a son. God came back to him and said, it's coming. You're going to have a son. Really? Okay, that's going to be a hard promise to believe. We have it so much easier than Abraham. Do you know what God promises us? That when Jesus dies, I'm going to bring him back to life again. When did that happen? 
2,000 years ago. We have a promise that's already been fulfilled. That's what you've got to put your faith in. That's what you've got to trust God for, that his son died in your place and was raised, that your sin has been dealt with. The promise is by grace, that it may be guaranteed to all who have the faith of Abraham. Do you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your astonishing kindness. For your undeserved, unmerited, unearnable favour toward us. Thank you that at the point when we were still your enemies, you entered our world to take upon yourself what we so richly deserved, your wrath. Father, thank you for Jesus dying in our place. Thank you that you raised him to life again. Sin paid for. Righteousness available to all who trust. And so, Father, please teach us to trust. To know that by works, by the law, by our own pursuit of righteousness, we will never get there. And instead to throw our lives into your hands. And we ask this for your glory. Amen.